How are you guys doing? It's your Magic Family. It's your host, Mark Karaki. Excited to be bringing you yet another episode of the podcast. This week, I had the honor and privilege of sitting down with Mr. Idris, legend of the African ecosystem. Idris is the founder and managing partner at Lofty Inc. Capital. His story is symptomatic of the journey that the African startup ecosystem has been through over the last decade and change. Idris's narrative is really about getting inspired, getting started, and keep moving. He has invested in some of the most legendary companies, everything from Mandela, Flutterwave, and a bunch of other very interesting companies that are in his portfolio. This story is just full of inspiration. This story is full of the hope and the belief that we all carry here on the continent of Africa when we think about what's possible. And for anybody else who's a fan out there of this wonderful place, Idris's story is emblematic of how things are changing, how fast they're changing, how things are moving, and where we are going. This is a snapshot over the last decade in how the ecosystem has evolved through one man's journey. How are you guys doing, Chile family? This is your host, Mark Karaki. Excited, excited to be bringing you yet another episode of the podcast. This week, I have a pioneer in the African tech ecosystem, Idris Aboyeji Velo. Did I get that right? Idris Ayodeji Velo. Okay, let's make it easy. Idris Velo. Let's go with Idris Velo. Idris, yeah. As Kenyans, we struggle with the, the Nigerian West African names. We need to expand our palette. But Idris, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. Karibu, right? <laughs> yeah. And you were just telling me how you were in Nairobi the last two weeks and then looking at your portfolio and you and you also went to, to London. Right now you're in Lagos, I take it. Are you back home? Actually, I'm in Cairo. That's oh, wow. So, okay. Yes. So, right. so visiting portfolio company. You get around. You're definitely are, you know, a player in this market. So that's why I'm so excited to host you because there's so much that uh, we can learn from you. So founding partner at Lofty Inc. Management Capital and Investment Venture Capital Fund. And yeah. I think I believe you're raising your third fund at this point, the Afropreneur Vintage, I would call it, or, or, or series, if you will. Actually, we just closed that this morning. So we were raising a $10 million fund for it. We already uh -huh. you know, oversubscribed. So this morning, I was the last uh, working day. So that is officially closed. And actually, we've, we've been deploying that for about six months now, right from our first close last June. And so we've deployed actually over 60% of that fund already. But again, I'm glad to say it's now officially closed. Fantastic. Congratulations on that. First question somebody asks in such a scenario is, where are your investors coming from? What's the mix? So that's a very interesting question because I saw if we look back 10, 12 years ago when we started at Lofty Inc., we we're trying to build an ecosystem. And for the first decade, I think our first half decade, we focused on building an ecosystem of African founders. But quickly realized that like it takes a village to raise a child, that an ecosystem of African founders would not suffice by itself. So you also needed an ecosystem of African operators, an ecosystem of African angels and investors. And we saw this because very early on when we invested in Andela in 2013, by five years later, four years later, when there were exits, we saw that the money flowed out to where it came from, which was Silicon Valley. And so very deliberately, a couple of years ago, 
we started building an ecosystem of African investors, African angels. And so I'm glad to report that over 60% of the individuals of the entities who have invested in this thought fund are actually Africans. So that's African angels, African institutions, and that's very important to us. Again, uh, we are glad to have other investors from across the world, from the Middle East, from the U.S. But again, I think it's very important to us that the part of this success story belongs to us as African investors too. I, I just love that so much. And it hasn't obviously been an easy journey for an African person to put money into venture capital. It is a very esoteric asset class for the African mindset. If you will. I guess if you could just sum for us, what has that journey been like? What how, what has triggered the change for you to actually have local capital getting it? What are some of the trigger points or changes that has made this happen? Thank you very much. I think what's happened over the past decade is an issue of a success, be getting more success and attracting folks on the ground. When I look back to 20, so 2012 was when we first started fundraising, right? 2010 was when we had started our tech hub in Lagos, uh, the innovation hub. And then by the following year, we were producing founders who needed to be funded. And I remember in 2012, reaching out in Lagos to those I considered high network individuals and asking them to fund these things called startups. And it was so strange to them. And a lot of them were like, it's not real estate opportunities or oil and gas, oil and gas opportunities. We're not interested. And so we struggled. Right. And then we... Because I lived in diaspora, so I reached out to friends in the valley and said, hey, there are these startups coming up in Africa, in Nigeria, particularly back then, would like you to seed them, right? to give them seed funds. And they were like, Africa, tech, startups, no way. <laughs> right? So again, so didn't get started. You know, that's 10 years ago. And then we went back and said, fine, what do we do? And we looked around the world and saw people setting up angel networks angel groups. So we said, okay, we'll set up an angel group ourselves. I would call it the Lofty Inc. Angel Network, LAN. And then uh, we create our funds ourselves. So we said, okay, what do we do? So we approached uh, the World Bank then for grants, right, uh, 2012. Mm -hmm. And uh, info unit of the World Bank and said, we're trying to set up this network called uh, Lofty Inc. Angel Network and we need grants to get it going. And I remember them saying, you need to make it more open, more exclusive. It cannot be named after you guys, it cannot be just you guys. Why don't you bring in the rest of the ecosystem? And so we changed the L from Lofty Inc. to Lagos. And that's what led to Lagos <laughs> Angel Network. Yes. And then ah, invited, okay. invited amazing people like Toby Davis, like Dr. Suleiman, and we collaborated and co-founded that. And they did an amazing job. Growing that. And that was June 2012, right? Almost 12 years ago. And that was how the Lagos Angel Network began. But one thing we quickly realized was that because it was just beginning, because it was still strange to a lot of people, it, I was taking time because what it did in the early days was bring together a lot, lot of executives in the banking industry, senior network, high network individuals to invest. And the process was basically they would have demo days every three to six months. Then they will spend another three to six months doing due diligence on these startups. Right. Well, the sad thing was that the companies, the companies were dead. It's like 
<laughs> it's like having you're having a baby and you're not feeding the baby. <laughs> exactly. You're going to go to the to see if the baby is worth feeding, right? Right. And saying, this is to work. I can't wait and apply all these rules around valuation, around and what do you look for again? There was nothing to compare with. And so we realized we had to do something very dangerously, very differently. And what did we do? We started writing personal tickets ourselves. I remember uh, going back and digging into my 401k in the US, my retirement benefit, paying an early withdrawal uh, uh, penalty, and right. taking out a chunk. I started writing checks myself. Uh, so 2013, January, I started writing, and these were small checks, $10,000, $5,000. And then the most we ever wrote around that time was $25,000 that I personally wrote uh, in, mm-hmm. I think that was July 2014, 2014. But 2013 was really, Five thousand, ten thousand, maximum twenty thousand dollars. And you know, in, in retrospect, it wasn't really a very smart move. And I'll explain why. These were mm-hmm. founders were first time founders. They were new cooperatives. Right. We didn't have anything like exit in mind. No, no idea what we were talking about. Anything called Series A, no tech crunch, right? So then anything they will do. We just basically just throwing money into deep holes. Ne- not knowing out of the way. But again, there, there was just Giving founders something to keep them alive. And probably right. 70, 80% of those companies died. But what it did was it, it led to a couple of things. One, it helped create a fledging ecosystem. It helped create, create founders who failed, then, but then would try it again and found something better. Or would have became employees in other startups. And so that was exactly. really the ecosystem. Exactly. Because, because, for instance, life starts to turn. Exactly, because like I was set up like nine, ten stars who did there, probably by eight died. But they were the, the lucky ones. So, what became Andela, for instance, I was Fora. We visited in Fora, wrote the first check into Fora in June 2013. It struggled, it died, and but it reincarnated as Andela again. And today, everybody has heard the story of Andela and all the success and it being a unicorn. But again, it happened because some people uh, like myself, like Pulley at CRE Ventures, like Evan Johnson, and they were. A couple of people put in the early tickets in 2013 when it was not yet a fad, right, to be an angel investor. And I don't even remember describing ourselves as angels then because, again, it wasn't even a fad. But that was really how we got started, right? I started writing those small tickets, all right, in 2013. And then I remember 2014 came and then Andela was born. And then Andela was another chance to write, to follow on, on on our funding. And then I didn't have more funds. And so what I ended up doing was quit my own angel network, which I call the Afropreneur Angels. And Afropreneur was a word I uh, created many years back to represent African entrepreneurs leveraging their networks, their exposure to build businesses on the continent. And so, yeah, so 2014, I wanted to double down Nandela and I basically sent an email to my mailing list. I said, there's this startup we visited in last year, uh, died, but it was incarnated as this. Would you like to come in? And for my friends, kept let me ask you this. And I was really let me ask. Let me ask you this because this this is very interesting. When you say it died and resurrected, could you dig into that a little bit and describe what you mean by that? Yeah, definitely. So what we invested in, so you all know Ilya Bridge, right? Amazing, amazing guy, and I've been privileged to back him about four or five right. times now. So he was, I think, when he was about nineteen years old, then just coming out of college, he was at Waterloo, right? University of Waterloo, mm-hmm. and working on his. Second startup, yeah, I done book netto, which didn't do too well. And then he started something called Fura. And the idea behind Fura then was to license content 
from universities in the West, in the U.S., in Canada, and provided that content to uh, Nigerian universities, uh, to start with, to augment their curriculum and get paid for that. But we really ran into issues because, this again, is before, uh, this is 20... This is before... Actually, okay. no. When was 2013? So this uh, actually uh, Coursera and those things are started. Exactly. Coursera, exactly. So for one of the conversations were with Coursera, Harvard X, MIT X. So those were some of the partners, early partners. Mm -hmm. uh, so they were licensing mm -hmm. content from them and then providing it, uh, curating it to go meet the university in Lagos, for instance, and say, fine, you are teaching electronics engineering, but there's this new module around, let's say, mechatronics that you don't even have the qualification mm -hmm. or the expertise to teach. But then we license the content and then you can use those content to teach those students. And this was before open, you know, all these things became open and yeah. And that was really what I was put around. And also approaching our companies and say, instead of sending your, your folks abroad to do this short course, why don't we create a short course and all this content for you, right? And this was before everybody had a uh, video on their phones and stuff like that. So that was really it. Well, we ran into a couple of issues because, for instance, the regulator in Nigeria said, you are doing all this, then you need to get a license as a university. And, well, <laughs> and not just getting, uh, and fundraising of stocks, probably ended up raising just about a little bit over $100,000. And I was talking to friends and they was this thing. It was just so difficult to raise funds. Again, this is 2013. Let me ask you this, Idris. Of course, going into such established institution like education, that's a tough road to go. Yeah. Looking back, what is it that you could have done, you guys, he could have done different to even not spend so much money? Could he have talked to them first? Was it something that, is there something they could have, he could, they could have done different? So, so one thing you learn quickly in Nigeria is this. For forgiveness, you don't seek for permission. If you seek for permission, Nigeria, you know, I love it. It's kind of one reasons why it should not be done, why it can't be done. Or you spend two, three years just okay. trying to do step. So you jump into it and then you seek for permission. So you do 10 things and they take eight things away from you and then you have the foundation for two things. Because what happened was, yes, we couldn't spell this, we this girl into issues, but then it became the foundation for Andela. Because around the same time was when he and uh, J Jeremy met together and Jeremy was transitioning out of to you, right? And it, I looking for something else to do. And then Fora uh, became the foundation. So it was almost like an awkward higher, you know, transition. And Fora became like one third of what became Andela. But because we had a foundation, because we had built a team of, uh, Fora had built a team of developers, right? They had uh, to build this thing out. It had been a local team in New... He had created uh, relationships on the ground, right, in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. So it, it was a foundation for Andela to be built on and around. And so as Fuera was died and became Andela, and then all the investors were just transitioned to Andela, and they would do, do, double down on, on Andela, right, by investing and then supporting the growth. So again, so I think the, the good thing for us was we were free. So, so we had this big picture that and he always says this, that we were we stubborn on the vision. We're clear on the vision of empowering or improving the curriculum of Africans, of exposing Africans to modern day knowledge, education, technology. Now, but I think what happened was we became very flexible on the journey, on the approach, on the details. So if you look at what Adela has done today in empowering developers, making people world class, you probably are closer to our goals of providing better education, right, to, to Nigerians and Africans.
Right, but wisdom is in a different way. Now we focus on the developers. And I think that, yeah, again, that was a good thing about uh, starting out there, right? Not knowing where, where this was going to end. Finding good people, backing them very early, writing a lot of tickets that went nowhere, but a few tickets that really ended up uh, in, in good places. And yeah. Fantastic. I have, I'm fascinated by the mindset that you had at the time so early with no proof points, with no experience. But what is it that was driving you guys? What was it that was driving you to go and dip into your 401k? What was the thing that was driving you that, that you had seen that you thought would happen here? Yes, so if I step back, so 2010 was a pivotal year for me because I was in business school in the U.S., all right? And that was actually my first introduction to the field of uh, entrepreneurship. And that was around the same time I was, I coined the term uh, Afropreneurship. And yeah, so for, for, for me, I, so I was looking at around that 2010, I was meeting a lot of young people in there. These networks were very positive about the continent. That was where you had uh, all these ideas about uh, Africa rising, right? There was even this book that right. we read about called Africa Rising, right? And talking about what was happening in India and how it was possi possible in Africa. And so we had all these high hopes. And so we're having all these meetings. So I joined an alliance there called the Harambe, Harambe, Harambe Alliance, or Harambe Entrepreneurs Alliance. Actually, that was where I met in Yabuiji. So we had all these young people back in this, that's where mostly UK and US, and who had these big dreams about the continent, and who are saying, you know what, can we replicate what's going on in India, in China, can we replicate it in Africa? And they were just dreams, they were just ideas. And I was, the idea for me was then, okay, fine. Uh, can we leverage entrepreneurship that like we're seeing in China and, and, and India? And uh, can we leverage it on, on the continent? What do we need? And so for me, the idea was, can you put together all these young people who have these global networks, who are leveraging technology? Can they then use a vehicle of entrepreneurship to actually bring up around, I know, a positive difference on the continent of Africa. And that was really why I had in mind and entrepreneurship. And so 2010, so that's, I think, I was, I, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, so, so the, that network, that energy, the whole zeitgeist of Africa rising, meeting all these young people, it's a thing that got you lit up, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, that was didn't have any concrete ideas. It was still very idealistic. But we just got us fired up because yeah, we were seeing these tools, we were seeing these things happen in the US, and we are seeing entrepreneurship, we are seeing these companies being founded. And the question was, why is nothing happening on the continent? And back on the continent then, mostly what was happening was, okay, I from in Nairobi was probably the one thing. If anybody was talking about entrepreneurship in Africa, then it was just basically I help. Nothing else was really happening. And then everybody was talking about the advent of cell phones and how, you know, landlines were being transitioned from the landline to cell phones and how cables were going to be laid and how data was going to be become, you know, available. Again, this is 2010 to 2011. I've asked, again, young folks, it was great. And the question was, what role were we going to play in this? And for me, initially at that point in time, I thought my role was going to be, you know, stay in the U.S., buy a couple of articles about this, and watch how things was going. But then, 2010 right. May, I happened to travel back to Lagos uh, for an event with, uh, called Future Leaders Initiative. And so while I was in Lagos, I then met uh, uh, a couple of people, young people also, media interview in one of the local uh, newspapers in Nigeria, where I spoke about entrepreneurship, what I was doing in Texas and how involved I was with the startup ecosystem in Texas and stuff like that. Again, just talk. So I flew back to the U.S. 
and thought that I was done with that. But then a friend of a friend saw a newspaper article and reached out to me and said, Idris, good talk, but why don't we do something about this? And my response was, we're here in the U.S., folks on the ground will do something about it. And I was like, no way. So, and so we got together a couple of times and that was actually what led to us starting art. So Lofty Inc. I remember the name of Lofty Inc. And then the idea was, can we turn all these Lofty ideas into corporations? So Lofty and Inc. Lovely. Incorporated. Great. Great. <laughs> yeah. So That's awesome. Right. So let me ask you this. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let me ask you this. This is, this is fascinating stuff because you are an IT, you are in the information technology department at Chevron, right? At the yeah. time. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Very stable, very, very stable career path. But you are at the back for entrepreneurship. How do those two things merge? How do those two <laughs> things I We're very unplugged because the reason I wanted to get my MBA was to actually move from the technical career ladder to the managerial career ladder at Chevron. So the MBA was actually put for my Chevron. So was Chevron sending me to do an MBA to become more of a business leader at Chevron. What was your mindset before? Are you just a committed technology path because you studied computer science? Yeah, so, so I started, okay, so, so if you back, growing up in Nigeria, I had a first class in computer engineering from Obafemiwolo uh, University in Nigeria, and then I had worked at P&G, Porter & Gamble in Nigeria, overseeing West Africa, supply chain, stuff like that, before I moved okay. to the U.S. But when I went to the U.S., my master's was in computer science, data mining, pattern classification. So very techy. And yeah, so when I joined Chevron, I was actually in the Emerging Technologies Unit of Chevron. And that was really where I was mm-hmm. applying my data mining skills and stuff like that. And so the, and that was at the end of 2005. So 2010, 2009 was when I went to business school because Chevron said, fine, you've done this for about five years and let's move you in this other direction at Chevron. But for that, go get this business right. degree. So, were you, ha- were you uh, happy and satisfied in your career at the time? I, 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 I watched it. that feeling. So, okay, so I was part of a bigger thing. I saw where I was going. Of course, uh, as someone in the Australia, you never lose touch with back home. So when I was watching where I was going on the continent, you were always saying this. I was saying iHub. I was seeing a few things. I was seeing mobile, telecom, and things take off. You're right, but I didn't know where I was going to fit in into that. But there wasn't anything... In my mind, I'm going to set up a company or anything back then. So at that point, the most I was doing was I was part of a couple of uh, ne- African networks in the U.S. Up to that, there was no idea for me uh, about you know, going to become an entrepreneur or an investor. I saw a very clear career path to the top for myself at Chevron. Uh, if not in the technical line, right. in the business line, I'd spend some time with Chevron at Angola and a few other countries. So... I had no reason. Everything was going very well. <laughs> so I had no reason to just <laughs> jump on I go jump the other base. So, so I blamed Chevron for sending me to business school. And I blame the professors I am <laughs> in, in, in business school. I think there, there was this wave also that was happening. A lot of folks were coming back into the into, and talking about entrepreneurship. And I remember with a couple of friends in year one, we had founded something called the Next School Idea on campus, which was basically a 72 hour startup weekend where MBA students would start on Friday morning with just ideas. And by Sunday evening, they were coming up with MVPs. And that was really my first uh, as on attempt at you know, creating something and building something. And so I got involved with that. Uh, out of that, I also joined a startup at Rice University. Uh, so the startup was called Libraries Across Africa. And 
So what had happened was there were two founders, two American guys on campus who were in the architecture department, mm -hmm. and they had built that this concept of repurposing shipping containers, turning them into digital libraries okay. and shipping them to Africa. Mm -hmm. But these guys have never been to anywhere in Africa. They had no clue, nothing was so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so when they put on a card, something yeah, exactly, exactly. So they trying to solve, you know, solve something they never been. So they put out this ad on campus saying they were trying to do this, and I and someone else uh, was actually one of my partners now, Kevin. So we approached them and said, guys, we know the continent. We've lived on the continent. We're from the continent. So let's work together. And that was really my first startup, really. Uh, libraries across Africa. It died later uh, for several reasons. But it was a very uh, eye-opening uh, opportunity into the startup space, into even creating the concept, the ideation, raising funds, right? I went, won a couple of competitions, but then moving from the point of ideating to then trying to deploy, I then understanding the market, and Accra was going to be our first market and stuff like that. So that was really, and I was doing this while working at Chevron. I was doing this working at Chevron. I, in the evening after school, the team would get out to build this. And so in the process, I started reaching out to folks on the continent and learning what was going on and building those networks, which were to prove useful later. Right. But again, I think that company died off, all right? Uh, but at the same time was when I then had to visit Lagos, like I said, and spoke about entrepreneurship and what we're doing. And so when I got back and a friend challenged me and said, why don't you do something about it? That was what then led to us starting Lofty Inc., right? Uh, so we had this great idea at Lofty Inc. that ultimately employment was a solution. Africa was growing, young people, you know, government was trying all its best, but again, ultimately the answer was going to come from entrepreneurs, was going to come from more high impact jobs being created. So we knew the what. We didn't know the how. And so we would get together myself and our two other partners, Mike Agwala in Houston. I will go to that in the evenings and just brainstorm, right? And say, what do we do? And so we said, okay, let's copy what iHub was doing, what Y Combinator was doing. And so we said, we set up a hub in Lagos. And we do it remotely. We found a fourth partner, Wally Data was in Lagos. And then was, we found a couple of partners and we put a tech hub where entrepreneurs will come to. And did you find it out of pocket? How did you guys find this? Okay, so initially, so the, way, so the first thing is, how do we name this? So what we did, we did was we looked at innovation. I said the I represented the privacy of the individual. So we moved the I will bring the we. There'll be a collaborative right, right? And so that mindset of coming together to do something together, right? And so we call it innovation hub. And then the question was, how do we fund this? How do we get started? So we approached a foundation in Nigeria called the African Leadership Foundation, and they had this small space that the Central Park had given to them in Nigeria uh, for entrepreneurship. And they were just only classes there. All these classes, you come in, you memorize what is entrepreneurship, types of entrepreneurship, advantages of entrepreneurship. <laughs> All these old schools. Business school stuff. <laughs> business school stuff, exactly. And so, 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 as they give us a very small, probably 15 meter, you know, very small space that, uh, that they gave us. And what we then did was, uh, we had a partner in Nigeria would so go to that space and we went to approach a couple of schools. Covenant University, University of Ibadan, three or four universities in Nigeria, and said, we have free space, we have free internet, and we have free power. Now, in 2010, these were very important things. Today, when as the data on their phone, 2010, it was not the same. 2010, people were browsing, you know, exactly. So data 
power was a big thing and space in, in Lagos. And so we would come and we would hold events. And then we subsidized the event. So the three of us were still working in oil and gas in the U.S. And so we'd, we, again, we have space, but we had to pay for a couple of things. I was just funding out of pocket. And again, we didn't know where this was going to lead to, but we were just like, we were creating a space for potential entrepreneurs to meet themselves. And then I think 2011 was a key turning point for that. Because I think there were two key events for us in 2011. One, one of our mentors in California invited us to sh share what we were doing at our renovation hub in, at the school in California called, I think it was called Montreal Institute of Studies, I think, MIIS. So it was within a two-year MBA, MPA program. But then what they had there, they also had something they called a Frontier Market Scout, where they would send the MBA students into new emerging markets for six months. To work with entrepreneurs, and they were doing this in Brazil and in two other countries. So they invited us to talk about innovation hub and what we're doing. Now we're still just at that point in time, innovation was still more big. You know, we had one or two staff in Lagos that was uh, and my partner in Lagos, but that was really it. And then we just having events for you to come in. So nothing really structured, fully fleshed out. But what happened was uh, the three partners in the US, myself and the, uh, the two others. We ended up going to this school in California, telling them about the concept of innovation, what we were doing. I think we oversold it. Because, oh, shoot. I love that legal synergy. We have this You know, that was scary for us. Because we are set up this thing. We are not even going back to Lagos since it was set up to see how it was going. All we knew was we had those partners in the US, and this guy in Lagos was running it. And we have sold this place to this Americans who had never been to Lagos and they had bought tickets. And so we spent the rest of the time in California trying to convince them on why this was not a wise decision. Are you serious? <laughs> you're, backing out, you're backing out of the situation. <laughs> Again, we have this small space that's named out to us. And the guy who was living in Lagos was living on the mainland. If you know Lagos very well, there's the mainland, there's the island. So the hub was on the mainland in Agekia, which is not a fancy area, um, but more of a slum area. The guy was living. And the partner in Lagos had never been outside of Nigeria. He had no exposure to these guys that was this sent in. When the athletes fled out, so we were not ready. But the man who tried to convince the people with only thought they were modern day cowboys that. <laughs> <laughs> we were going to discover Africa and like this entrepreneurship thing. So February 20 in London, we suddenly had actually four. So there's this Togolese American guy and then three American ladies who descended on Lagos and go to our hub and saw this small corner, right? That was all the innovation hubcast. And this guy was a partner who was managing this project, Jalo Peter. That was a car and that had to be pushed each time to get started. And we were putting them in a gate where there was no generator and most nights were, you know, dark. It was crazy. And I remember at that point in time, I woke up at Chevron, get to work very early, and spend most of my time settling quarrels. Because they were on the ground, we were trying to get them to get things start, started. But they were, I'm being Americans, right? They were using the F word on my partner in on our partner in Lagos. Mm -hmm. We was not used to Americans. And he was saying, come and pack these yeah. guys. I don't need this fox you sent me. <laughs> come on, take baby. This is <laughs> <was, this laughs> <was, this laughs> like, 
<laughs> this sounds like <laughs> uh, what do you call it? Reality TV show. <laughs> yeah, it was right again because so we're asking them right in Nigeria, like, which even if you are in Vegas, Lagos, no foreigner lives in Nigeria. Right? These were white people, so it was risky <laughs> and there was no power, and they were also insisting on going to parties at night, right? So we don't know it's right? And then, so even finding enough for them to do building things, right? But let's start off to work with, let's even start from there, right? Because we asked, no, we had some wonderful founders, right? And because what suddenly happened was, mm-hmm. how do we occupy these people? So we reached out to the Lagos Business School, reached out to Faith Foundation in Lagos, and it folks in the space. And so we started working with them, fleshing out what innovation was going to be, doing market studies talking to entrepreneurs about what was needed. And so we got them busy. And so, and then we had people, I think, a couple of other folks in Lagos who actually were living on the island and we offered them to spend the weekend on the island. Right? So they had access to swimming pools and all this fancy stuff on the weekends. And then on the weekday, they were back there. I get to working with us. Well, again, it was, you know, no, no, again, it means we're funny still telling that, but it was really funny back then. I can because imagine, have, but if you have, if you have, oh. <laughs> Yeah, you're foreigners in your, in your country, then you're so responsible, you know. <laughs> exactly. I want to start explaining to their school, you know, I was and stuff like that. So again, it was, it was, it stretched us out. I got us into the community. People know about where we were, what we were trying to do. But when they left, actually, we had the core form of what innovation was going to be. Where we had people, uh, had about us through them and the effort. And uh, I think they also, I think it was also formative for them, which was, I'm still very much in touch with them till today. And when they, they look back on those experiences, I think they also toughened them up, right? So I hate so out there. For us, it really fleshed out who we're going to be. And uh, it made us realize this was not going to be any like a walk in the, uh, a walk in the park, right? Because by the time they were done in summer, what had happened was, by the time they were done in summer, I remember MIT was starting this program called AITI then, where they were sending computer science majors from, from the U.S. to go teach coding in African universities. So in, in Kenya, in Nigeria, and coding. So again, this was, so this was 2011, uh, 2011, 2012. And so we then decided we're going to partner with them. So they had identified a couple of schools in Nigeria where they were going to teach them coding. So we said, you know what? Let's be a partner. You teach them coding. We teach them business principles. And at the end of the program in summer, we have them create ideas. And that was really where our first set of founders came out of. Where, again, coding was not, you know, again, everyone is a developer right now, but the 20, everyone, it wasn't a thing, right? Even then, people in computer science majors were just learning just the old Fortran language and stuff like that. But these guys were coming in and the Sharp, Java, and a few other things that were web. And so, really, so 2011 summer was when we had our first set of what you describe as as, as startups, right? Mm-hmm. And I uh, started working with them in the hub and building, and uh, most of them, them died. But that was really what then led in 2012 to us seeking funding. Because only that point in time, we're not even talking about how we founders, how were these startups going to be funded. But then because now, 2011, we ended up creating these startups with a partnership with MIT, our program. Then by 2012, the ones that were still alive needed funding. And of course, that's what led to the Angel, Lagos Angel Network, the Afropreneur Angel Group and all the story about uh, funding, right? And again, and I think that was the first wave for us. So when I look back to us, so the 2010 to 2015 was probably the first wave, and very uh, far Nigeria and most of Africa, but around the ecosystem building. And, and of course, we then had the 2016 to 2020, 
Uh, and then twenty twenty. So again, I think I'm booking as a for me personally, I've been able to book it as those five year windows, twenty ten to twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen to twenty twenty, and then twenty twenty to it makes total sense. I would have completely agree. I made my move in the second wave. I was in Silicon Valley for 17 years. And then that's when I made my move in 2018. With the same motivations as you, uh, fundamentally. So very kindred spirit. And let's talk a little bit about now your investing experience. And, yeah, so you dipped into your 401k. And yeah. Floyd Capital. Any of those startups still around? Or, or is the Adela story the one that came out of that? Too? So I think Adela was a major one. So let's... Okay, so... There are some that just died last year. You know, again, there were some that died very early. There are some that limped along, right? There, so if I look at the 2010 to 2015, so there's apart from Andela, there's Epom. Epom is still alive. Epom was 2014. Let's see. Those are probably the only two that are really still alive from that first wave, right? And the rest are probably just dead, dead. Yeah, from that first wave, I think it's Andela, where it knows right now, and then Epom. Everybody else is probably just dead. Or they've moved on to other things. Second time founders or they've become points that some of those that died in 2013-12. I remember going to Andela campus in 2015 and meeting two guys, not even recognizing them. And they were reminding me they were actually part of the startups from the MIT events that we had. Mm-hmm. So they ended up dying, but it exposed them to the old startup thing, the old developer uh, part thing, and they became some of the early Foundation employees at Andela. So again, even this, and that's what you do. You know, sometimes you throw away seats, right? You think, but again, they still germinate in some form. And I think that's one thing about the ecosystem. Not everything is a direct one-to-one relationship between you invest and this is the success. Sometimes just watering the, the land, making it more fertile for other people who are going to come after you, right? And build up the ecosystem. And I think once you have that ecosystem thinking in mind, I said exactly, yeah. So when nothing is wasted. At the very worst, you're investing an individual who most uh, is going to go on at some point to play other role in the ecosystem. Yeah. Fantastic. I remember any money that went, you know, lost, right? There was 2014, there was this guy who reached out on Twitter, true, if other friend, I said, fine, I owed him a $25,000 check, which was very big. I never met him, I don't know, because I was in the US, I wasn't meeting a lot of these people in person. So even when there was Zoom, for me, it was mostly investing my Skype. I was in the US, I was writing tickets, and I didn't meet any of probably about, Two, three years after we invested. And same thing for a lot of these other books. So it was really Skype. So there was this guy we invested in this box back then. I was supposed to build a back office uh, operation for startups. So I think we invested April 2014, 25K. Got other people to also invest about 50K. And two months later, he told us it was folded. It was off. It wasn't doing anymore. The money was gone. Wow. Wow. And I played it. I mean, <laughs> and I'm not even up to now as we go back. We got, uh, I think it was PwC, we got involved to do some audit. He wouldn't even open his books and stuff like that. Just got messed, right? So there were a lot of mistakes made around due diligence and the founder and understanding the market and things like that. But again, I think the way I've described it was a period of getting my LLM, right? And learning by losing money. So that, that was it for me. <laughs> learning by losing money. That's a painful way to learn. But hey, you, you still pick the lessons and they probably stick more than any other type of lesson. So... Yes. At the time, I guess you were in the U.S., you hadn't moved to Nigeria. You're writing checks from the U.S. When did yes. you move to Nigeria? So, 2015 was pivotal. So, 2015, uh, so we've been running up to it for about five years. We had the renovation hub going on, doing more of the ecosystem building, pre-seed stuff. We had angels taking on because 
uh, with the advent of Adela 2014, the angel group had gone to about five, six people from myself because we had to write follow on tickets in 2014 and 2015. Uh, so that had grown. Uh, so we had that going, uh, going on silently. And uh, so we started looking at the ecosystem, more founders ha happening. And so by 2015, two of the four founders at Alopti Inc. said, maybe we should start moving back. Maybe we should start going on the ground and building this out. So 2015 was when Michael and myself made a move. So I resigned from ExxonMobil. Michael resigned from, uh, from Wally Pass and Kraken, and we moved uh, to Nigeria. And, and the idea was we were going to spend more time on innovation. We we're going to do more angel investing. But more importantly, we're trying to, we started looking at uh, also doing advisory and innovation sector, looking at working with whether for the World Bank, for the Gates Foundation, trying to understand the whole innovation landscape and also trying to look at even the public sector. How do you drive innovation? It also coincided with uh, a change of government in Nigeria, right? So there was a new government coming in. And so we felt there was going to be a level playing ground. I uh, thought, okay, there will be more interest in uh, innovation, applying innovation to the public sector. So 2015 was where we made uh, that move to be more on the ground. But even at that point in time, I think running the phone was not even, even, even uh, on, on the platform. It was just really more of building, building that love to aim, uh, to play more of a role and building out our own businesses on the ground, supporting entrepreneurs, but also looking for opportunities on the ground to actually build out more businesses. But I think all that changed the following year, 2016. Because yes, we're building uh, Lofty Inc., but two things happened in 2016 that were fairly key to what, who we, we have become today. The first one was its Series uh, B, and that was led by Mark Zuckerberg's foundation, the CZI. Foundation. Exactly. And not just that, he actually visited Lagos himself. Mark came to Lagos. And when I tried to describe the tech ecosystem in Africa, or particularly Nigeria, I see there was B, M, and A, M. Just the same way you have B, C, and A, D, right? I say B, M, A was Mark. Right? It was before Mark and after Mark. <laughs> because it was personal for me. Personally for me, by 2016, my parents were worried. Left me to I had gotten three master's degrees, and... I was working for Chevron as an examable. I suddenly I resigned. I moved back to Nigeria and I'm doing this thing called Love to Ink. Doing this thing. Are you crazy? Small, small <laughs> are you okay? So again, it didn't make sense to them, right? And I wasn't buying houses. I wasn't doing real estate. I wasn't doing anything. I was just doing something called startups. And I was following. I mean, I was not following. Yes, exactly. They were seeing me. I mean, I was this 19 year old, 20 year old. And it was just it didn't make any sense to them. But when Mark invested. I told him, I said, you know what? Dad, mom, you use Facebook. They both use Facebook. The guy who owns Facebook and myself, we're not co-investors. You might be doing something right. You might be doing something right. Also, a lot of the folks we spoken to three, four years earlier about the African opportunity started reaching out by email and saying, what's going on in Nigeria? Why is Mark in Nigeria? What is this Adela thing? How do we get involved? So I started getting a lot of attention. I'm like, wow, wow. So it took Mark out. Up. So that was one part. The other thing that was quite pivotal for us was 2016 was the year Flutterwave was founded. So in a brief at Adela, left Adela, and partner with uh, GB and uh, Lakey to found. And I remember him giving me a call and saying, "Living Andela, and I'm going to be found, you know, co-founding this thing called in payment space and stuff like that." 
And my answer was, where do I send a check to? <laughs> so I thought, <laughs> but then you are ready, you are ready for action. <laughs> I was ready again. I was ready. It was a very small amount. They had not even gotten to YC. So the valuation was about $2.5 million. And that's crazy. Wait, you remember that they, wait, wait a minute. Yeah. In that switch. But in that switch is not moving fast enough. You know, that's simple. There's a payment for density. <laughs> the only player now is InterSwitch, but there's this so the that InterSwitch has gone too comfortable. I would tell Let me ask you a question. There. Let me ask you, what was the insight? Who had that insight? Because sometimes you, in, that is an industry insight. You have to come from the industry to Yeah, so, so you're starting from a GP. You're starting from a GP, which a GP, GP had worked on PayPal. He had worked as Panbin, and at that point in time, he was working at Access Bank. And so it, so it was GB being inside saying that, but GB not having the technical know-how to build that at that point in time. And at that point in time, and so another was the one who had developers. And again, I hope I'm not misrepresenting this, but the way I understand it was at GB had approached uh, Andela, or uh, Andela was not interested in helping build that out, and he took over the opportunity. That's what I recall. Again, maybe you slightly up on the details. But that was really it, the way it was happening. So it was really not uh, E with the industry, with the entrepreneurship, no, with the brand. Uh, GB and Co with the insider, no, uh, with an understanding of the opportunities, they come together. So it was a new brand. And I remember back then, uh, uh, GB was still working on access, so we, we, we didn't even see two, so it was mostly E. But then the name was basically just one white who spent the check to. And where was the validation? Validation still made sense then. The valuation was $2.5 million post money. So yeah, so with the a small check and, <laughs> and actually put... Is that product? Did they even have a product in the market? Were they... What's the actually... What, what was the valuation? They were just putting out the product. When I saw the deck from that for the... Yes, actually at that point in time, they were having conversations. So, so the, so the, the way what they wrote was this. Access needed at a need. Access bank at a need. So this already spawned out of an existing need by Access Bank to build what is now called pay with capture. And Access Bank didn't have the know-how inside internally to build it. So it was really more of a project become a startup. And they saw that it was not going to be only Access Bank that needed it, other people would need it. So exactly. So, so, they, so they were wondering about coming with an idea and looking for clients. There was a client from day one. That's amazing. So let's fast forward to some of your exits, eh? Because I know you've deployed a lot of capital. You've seen some exits. Talk to us about some of these exits and what that has meant to you, I guess, personally or in any way, shape or form. How has that impacted you? So, so the couple of things I, I live by as an angel investor and, of, of course, much as a fund manager. So what I, I say to invest is human. To exit is divine. Oh, I... <laughs> Fantastic. I love it. Anything you can invest, invest. someone brings something to you, right? And you put money in there, right? Again. So, but how do you, it's not in an ecosystem where there are that many exits. And that was one of the questions people asked us in 2014. They would say, where are the exits? How do you get my money out? And again, so, so I'm very deliberate about our exiting. So that's the first maxim I live by. The second one is, in Nigeria, there's this proverb that we learned growing up, where they say, a board in hand is worth two in a bush. And so you have That's an African proverb, my friend. African, exactly. <laughs> no, so, 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 but, 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 but I, I don't live by that. I say when it comes to exits, when it comes to uh, the startup space, a board in hand is the only board. 
<laughs> it's the only but. When I said exit, I take it. You exit. <laughs> I exit. So, 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 you buy and you deal. Mm -hmm. So I'm on an exit as you go. So I go into a startup, I invest, and I still very close to the founders and opportunities. When there's an opportunity for an exit, no matter how small, I take something out. I still leave enough in. But again, I don't live by the allocations. So again, that's for folks who want to report to their superiors about their IRR and all this nice people stuff. It's my money, right? I read this with my money. Right. And so cash back, cash in hand gives me liquidity to do, to do more. Because again, where I thrive is investing very early on. And the only way I stay active is by having dry powder to invest. And so I need liquidity. And so what I do is I invest, I stay close to helping them. And when someone comes to buy, when innovation is loud, I take something out. So I'm not greedy and say, you know what, again, I'm, 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 my name is something on the table. I want to do something on the table for others to, 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 yeah. The shortest time out between one, an investment on exit for me has been uh, seven months. There was an investment I did seven months after there was a 10x opportunity. I took 70% of my investment out, left the rest in. So we say, wait, wait, it's still going to grow and stuff like that. And again, so, so, so I'm not been the approach. I stay close enough, I add value, there's an opportunity, I take some out, I leave enough in to keep going. So when they got Andela, for instance, I've done four partial exits, I still have enough to keep going to IPO. So I move, I've probably done about three partial exits. I still have enough to keep going. And when I say JMO, we've so probably I you know close to about eight nine exits now, partial exits. And again, that's the idea. Take out the exits. Uh, if I, other agents involved, return funds to them and keep going, find new opportunities, invest in them, and keep going. That, that's what we do. And so you say you invest early. How early do you invest? It sounds like at Adela it was just basically even deck at, at the deck phase. I know well. Or I suppose I know where or you put founder. Yeah. So for the that, I already knew if I didn't want to deck, I put money in. Uh with Eden Life, uh, when Nad was moving from Mandela to start Eden Life, I had known Eden Nad for a couple of years. When I did founder in Egypt, because Egypt is now my second market after Nigeria. So Nigeria is my biggest uh, oh, really? market, but Egypt is the second one for me. Uh so probably have about 16, 17 uh, portfolio companies or more in Egypt now. And so some of them right now, so in the what I call the Uber Mafia. Ex Uber employees starting uh, companies in Egypt. I, I just write them a check. I see them great space. I had the check. So but as early as so from an angel group, as early as if to wait an uh, idea, wait an MVP. But then we have a fund that follows on when you have at least one paying customer. So right to write this out ticket, but then if uh you show traction, then we can follow on with larger tickets in our fund. So that's that's what we do. So we cover that spectrum uh, from right now from pre-seed to pre-series A. And then very soon, I think we're right. going to be some more series A placed. How do you perceive this new structure that YC recently announced? How do you, how is that affecting, what's your perspective on that? So, so, so it's an interesting one. So again, uh, for, uh, again, so if you look at us today, a lot of our investments, particularly in the angel group, is pre-YC. So every year, we only have about five to 10 of our companies. And so from that perspective, it goes well. But then we also have companies who come to us just after the YC acceptance. They get the YC, they realize YC is going to help them, but they know they need local help. They need goods on the ground. They need folks who have the networks. And so they come to us and say, we're going to YC, but before YC signs or before demo day, would you be able to invest? Because you've been on a cap table, helps us raise money at demo day, right? 
uh, or helps give the right signal that we have folks on the ground who can help us. So that's mainly the part that's mostly affected right now. The pre-YC one, again, we've always been there pre-YC, so that's not affected. I think it's those companies who want us to come on between YC acceptance to demo day. Those are the ones that are probably going to be affected by this one. Because the way that happens is we're either in before YC, like we have always been, mm -hmm. or we wait, I'll mm -hmm. see traction post YC. So because we, because okay, I love Rice and I love Michael and all the founders and, and I from time to time I, I catch up with Michael, but I don't use YC as a signal. I know the ecosystem enough not to wait for YC as a signal. Yeah. So I think the challenge is for a lot of folks to wait for YC and then write the tickets. And the challenge with that is this: YC is great, but a bad company is going to be a bad company whether it goes to YC or not. So I, YC is great, but it's it's that it gives, it gives you money, you have the network, but you still have to do the job on the ground. And so a good company gets better by going to YC. With a shitty company, even going to YC, you still go to remain a shitty company. Just a fancier, more expensive, shitty company. All right? So that's my <laughs> <laughs> That's my thing. So again, I think, again, when we trust it, how it involves. And then the thing for my YC also is, YC is also having competition. So a, lot of companies, a lot of companies are also wondering, why should we go to YC? There's on deck now, there's text, yeah. there are more options. So it's, it's different from 2016, 2017, where YC was the only stop. So the next two, three years, I think it will be interesting to see whether YC keeps, keeps up with this approach, whether it changes, how that impacts who goes to YC, who does not go to YC, and how that impacts other seed funds. Again, I don't think we're too impacted. Again, we think there's still a lot of opportunities out there for YC, and we're willing to take those bets, help them very early on. And again, if there's some we see after YC that makes sense, in terms of traction, and not just because they are YC companies, we'll still invest. It's only our fund likes to come in early under $5 million, but we've done a couple of investments around 15, 20 million, where it made sense, where the founders were great, where we see the traction. What we just do is, when we're taking the risk very early on, we want to be sure that's factored into the valuation. And when valuations are higher, we want to be sure that it's factored into the traction. So that's when we look at this. Makes sense. Yeah. And okay. So a, f a few final questions for you. So in terms of founders, you say, what do you look for? What is that thing that you look for now? That how has your evaluation evolved? Give us yeah, a sense of these are the things I look for before I invest. Definitely. So it's again, at the end of the day for me, I think I, um, this is not a job for me. Even though I'm a fund manager, yeah, it's something I enjoy doing. I saw I only want to spend my time with good people. I walked away from great deals with you. People that I don't just didn't jive with, right? Would it be able to spend time with? Again, right, right. this has been something I spent five, ten years together on WhatsApp, on emails, meeting each other, you know, knowing each other's families and stuff like that. We want to invest in good people, right? Even if they fail, and that's very key to all. But when we boil down our investment, our criteria is in three things. We say, why you? Why now? How big? So why you? We send it around the founder and the founding team. Why are you solving this problem? What's your connection to this domain? Right. What's the in your heart? What's your story? Why this problem? Why not something else? Why would you why would you stay on this? What's your connection? What do you know differently? What differentiates you? What how do you what networks, what net access, what insights do you have that's going to give you an advantage? What unfair advantage do you have? And then your founding team in your networks again about this. So it's very important to us. So the founding team. It's probably about 60, 70% of this, right? Because all things involve, business ideas involve, the space evolves. 
but what you can hold on to is the founder and the founding team. So that's the key thing for us. All right. Then, so once you answer the why you, then we now say why now? Timing is one of the biggest factors in our success. The ideas that would have failed five years ago but would do well now because of COVID, because of uh, technology and things like that. So we're asking what trends are you seeing? What understanding of the market do you have? For now, for the future, you think it's supporting why you're doing this, right? So again, what waves are you seeing? What are what you look ahead, right? So why now? What's what's is it economic changes? Is it regulatory changes? Is it larger market changes? Is it something in other markets? So why now? Why would this succeed? I think that's, that's a big factor for us. Then we're not saying how big, right? Again, the funds our funds are limited, so there are only so many ideas we can support, so many founders. So I say, how big are you thinking? Are you solving a small Tiny problem somewhere, great, go ahead, do it. But are you really, really moving the needle? Are you solving something for your community, for Africa, for the world? What, who's getting impacted by this? What does this change in the, in, in the, in the scheme of things? So, again, for us, that's, that's really what, what we're asking. So, we're saying, why you, why now, how big? And everything else is built around that. Uh, so, sector wise, we're agnostic, but we like to focus on six sectors. The way we describe it is this we say Africans are essentially traders, even before technology. We've always traded with each other. And so we're asking, who's building technology that allows trading to become easier? Well, that, that's key commerce, e-commerce, so that's one. But for you to do commerce very well, you need to be able to solve for payments, for fintech, for credit. For... So again, who's building the fintech systems, embedded fintech that allows commerce to grow and seamlessly? There was the logistics that allow delivery of goods and services of people, right? So there are three core sectors, commerce, fintech, and logistics. But we say essentially we're Africans. We're Af and for us, this is more than naira and cover. It's more than dollars and cents. It's about building a future for a continent. And so and that is not going to happen unless you have Africans who are well-educated, who are healthy, and who are food secure. Human capital. So I want food secure. So it's, exactly. So it's healthcare, it's education, it's uh, food security. So that's really our sixth sector, right? So that's, the first part is about uh, the commerce and enabling commerce and our prosperity. The second part is about human capital and LV, well-fed. That's really what, what we have not seen. Yeah. I, I love it. I love it. Listen, I have enjoyed, Aboyeji, I've enjoyed every minute of this. I think you have a treasure trove of valuable experience, insights. But the thing that stands out the most for me is your spirit. It's you have a pure spirit, like you're doing it for, like you said, the vision has stayed the same. The purpose has stayed the same. The path may have changed here and there. Flexible on the journey, flexible on the details. And then it's, we don't want to get the destination. So we just have to enjoy the journey. Right. I, I love it. Amazing. And it sounds to me like your favorite, like you said, Lagos and Cairo, or, or at least what do you call it, Egypt, are your favorite markets right now. If you are to rank your top markets for where pi pipeline is or portfolio is, however you want to rank that, I think you said Lagos, Egypt. What's yes, it? Cairo, Lagos, Cairo. I think next is going to be between Nairobi and Jobok. So again, I think if I look at my stop, so Nairobi and Jobok. We're also increasingly paying attention to. Two markets, uh, actually three different markets, which are actually different from our fo African focus. One is diaspora in the U.S. There's a lot, of, again, you see a lot of migration, right, in the past two, three decades from Africa to Canada to the U.S. 
there were second generation folks who have found the companies. You've heard of Calendly and so on, things like that. So we're looking at that very seriously and, and looking for founders who are in the US. So actually last year we brought a couple uh, in the US and the UK uh, who are second generation Africans. And so that's a big market for us that we're exploring. Also as people who have lived in diaspora ourselves and would see, would see the need. That's one. With the two other markets which are also quite interesting uh, and adjacent to Africa, one is Pakistan. So yeah, so individually we've done a couple of investments in Pakistan because usually I like to joke that there are three sister cities, Lagos, Cairo, Karachi. They're very chaotic, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it's also amazing the needs that need to be met in those cities and the opportunities for entrepreneurship. And so, uh, and so, so we've seen that. And because we now see a lot of models when we first see them in, in, in Pakistan and then Five months later, six months later, that's all he's doing it in Lagos or in Cairo. And so we, yeah, so exactly the pattern match we've seen as a study. Mm-hmm. We also study very closely is Latin America. So then when it comes to fintech, we're seeing a couple of fintech solutions that go from Africa to Latin America or vice versa. So again, very interesting uh, stats and and uh, on that we'll be partnering with folks like Rally Cap. Rally Cap has done a lot of job in Latin America, so we're studying and, and co-investing with them on some opportunities. Yeah, so again. I think it's still very early, and I like to say it's still day one for the emerging market, for the African uh, ecosystem, and we're just glad to to be here and uh, to be enjoying the journey and meeting the great founders. I'm looking forward to the next couple of years. You know, yeah, I always like to look at the cultural differences of what makes certain ecosystems tick. And you, you are in Nairobi, you've got a portfolio in Nairobi, I live here, and I'm always trying to ask myself what the differences are to the ecosystem. So, so let, me, let me contrast three ecosystems very interestingly. So when I look at Nigeria and Egypt, I call the Nigerians the Egyptians of West Africa, or I call the Egyptians the Nigerians of North Africa. Those are the impatience, <laughs> the aggressiveness, uh-huh. uh, the willingness to okay. uh, want to you know get it done, get stuff done. Mm. Now where the difference comes in, where the difference comes in is in it's in the fintech space. In Nigeria, you seek for forgiveness, not permission. In Egypt, you seek for permission or forgiveness. The regulators can go ahead. They don't play. They don't play, exactly. So <laughs> I will say that we start, they was telling that we were ahead of the regulator and then got, got, uh, got slammed. Uh, but the difference is the regulator is actually very well many, right? So ultimately, the regulator works in your favor in Egypt, right? Just takes time. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, in Nigeria, you cannot really count on the regulator working in your favor. So you have to be two steps ahead, right? It's one of the regulator makes up daily and thinks, how can I screw, screw these guys up right in Nigeria? So that's that's what it is. Right. Now when I consider, so that's Egypt and Nigeria, right? So when when I consider when I compare Nigeria and Kenya, I want to use this analogy that a friend gave me a while back and which I found very true. Uh because a few years ago, Nairobi, Lagos, Kenya, Nigeria were almost at par. I think I was even ahead. That's of investments, that's of Kenya seems to have slowed down. Yeah. I slowed down. My, my analogy is this. Nairobi is a very nice place to live. Very easy going, things work. Uh, Safari come has solved a lot of problems with Impesa, right? So things are going fairly well. So when we look at Kenya, I look at it as imagine people in a boat as a roof. But the roof has some point in which it's leaking. And so folks in Kenya are just trying to patch those Points, <laughs> the, uh, you know, the doesn't fall on them. Nigeria, on the other hand, okay. the same boat, sailing is sailing. <laughs> 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 then they are placed in a ship itself. 
Yes, the Kenyans, yeah, it's this, it's like a, it's like a, the, the frog in the, in how you can boil a frog in the water. Yeah. It's a slow, it's a slow, it feels like that. Nairobi is a beautiful city. Yeah. Great place to live. I, I enjoy it here, but at the Great same lovely. time, it can allow you, it can allow you to, to un, un, uncomfortable sleep, but it's still sleep. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 So that's what it is. But listen, I've really enjoyed this. This is fantastic. We have to do it again. You have a ton of insights. I love your approach to everything you're doing. So I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us here. Thank you very much for inviting me.